Uh, I was born in a small town called Masjid Suleiman in southern Iran. I born in Syria. I was born in Hamburg, Germany. I was born in Congo. I was born in Tanzania in a refugee camp. I was born in Singapore. Guatemala City. I'm from Ireland. I was born in Thailand refugee camp. I was camp. born in Mumbai. India. I was born in Vientiane. I was born in England. I was born in Costa Rica. Welcome to Many Roads to Here, bringing the voices of immigrants, refugees, and asylum seekers to a national conversation about migration and identity. I'm your host, Caitlin Dwyer. Today we hear the voice of Anna Georgiev, a Romanian nurse. She escaped a life of poverty in communist-run Romania with a once-in-a-lifetime love. And I'm Monica Salazar. Anna Jurjiv was listening for the dogs. Fasting, hungry, she kept her ears open for barking. If she heard a sound, it would indicate the direction of her future husband. November 17, it's a holiday. And in that day, if the girls are too old, they have to fast. So they will dream of who they are going to marry. So that day, my mom made me eat a piece of uh, cornmeal with salt, half cornmeal, half salt. And you're not supposed to eat all day, not drink water all day. And in the evening, when the sun sets, you sit on the chopping block and you eat that piece of salt and you listen for the dogs to see which part of the village they are going to be barking. So I'm eating my salty bread, and I'm sitting there, and nobody is barking. No dogs are barking. I'll never get married. Anna was born in 1958 in a small agrarian town in northwest Romania. Her father was a miner, and her mother worked in the hills around their house, growing potatoes and corn. At the time, the Socialist Republic of Romania was a one-party communist state. The government formed collectives in which acres of land were seized from the landowners in order to be redistributed to become cooperative farms. Her family at the time didn't have much, but they managed to get by. My grandparents, my father's father, had a house up in the mountains and he had sheep. And every summer my mother would send me there to live with them. And uh, up in in that little um, pasture, we had a house with two rooms. We will sleep in one, and in the one was a little stove, and we will cook. And behind the house was a shed where the sheep were coming. And um, I remember they had a big uh, white dog. Her name was Lushka. And um, the water was about probably half a mile in a ravine. So I will get the pail, and I'll get on the dog, and the dog will take me all the way to the water and bring me back up. I just remember... No no worries whatsoever, no activities, just whatever came. I helped to feed the dogs. I helped getting the sheep in the coral to milk my grandpa to milk them. You had to give back a certain amount, so you were left with very little. And then if you needed to buy anything, you didn't have money because you worked the fields, so they will pay you certain amounts of money, but at the end of the year. So you worked really for food, and you had to be careful. (laughs) ¶¶ 
See, sometimes you're ashamed to say that you are that poor. Our bread was uh, like wheat, dark bread or uh, cutaway bread, black bad bread. Mm -hmm. And you would have to stay in lines for days. And I remember being a child, uh, probably 10, 11, and if you are not strong, they will the men and women will just step over you and get in line. And by the time you scraped off the floor and you got up, the bread was gone. So you came home with no bread, and that would be a very sad day for us. It was because we had to make a little cornmeal and go to bed hungry. So it was, it was hard. As a kid, I remember I was always cold because we had very few shoes and always cold. And I didn't have only one pair of shoes for the summer and a pair of um, tennis shoes that we wore in the winter. We did not have a radio until 1964. So we that had no radio, no electricity. 1965, really, uh, our father built a house and we uh, got electricity and a radio. Uh, what I remember later when in the 1975, 6, 7, uh, we were listening to French music, Dalida. That's the only one that I remember. My mother and my grandmother wanted to marry me when I was 15, 16, 17, but my father really kept me <laughs> safe and said, well, she has time. Let her finish high school, let her. And then 1977, when I finished, I uh, went to southwest of the country, Timisoara, uh, to go to engineering school. I got all the way to the testing, and I failed by zero point something. My grade was... Uh, six something, 6.5, and the entry level was seven by 0.5. So my I passed, but the admission grade was not good enough, so I did not go. And so, unable to attend school, Anna found herself sitting on her porch with parked ears. As the sun set, she sat with a bit of salt and cornmeal, hoping to hear the sound of dogs barking to reveal the direction where her future husband might live. So that night... I go to bed and I dream that I'm going down the road and the roads are not paved. And there was a big puddle of water. I was thirsty. So I bent down to, to get to the water, I don't know, to wash my shoes or just to be close to the water. And when I bend down, here comes a boy and says, it's okay, I'll wash your shoes. And when I get up, when I straighten up, is this tall boy, mustache, blue eyes, red sweater, and a pair of pants that I've never seen before. Blue pants that just didn't seem like what I've, saw, I've seen before. So in the morning, my mom is like, who did you dream about? I don't know. She asked me, this, that boy, that boy. Nope, nope. Somebody i never seen before. My watch uh, broke one day. The battery needed changed, and I took it to a watch repair shop. And then he says, come back in uh, three days or so. so I went to get my uh, watch back. And when I walked in the repair shop, here is this tall boy, blue eyes and a mustache. And uh, he walks in and I look around. I got my watch and uh, he says, would you like to have coffee? So in that watch repair shop when I turned around and I saw him was the boy in my dream. Red sweater and blue jeans. 
and I've never seen blue jeans until I went to Timisoara because we were up in the mountains and I didn't know what those are, but I knew her pants that I've never seen before. So when I saw him, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is it. <laughs> and I went and I had coffee and October 10, we got married. He was 23 yeah. and I was 19. I loved him. At the city hall, we, it was only his mom. That's it. And the, the men at the office, the justice of the peace or whatever, it was a person that married us. So the four of us were there. But uh, my father wanted to have a church wedding. Uh, the dress was my cousin's because I was not about to spend money on a dress. We didn't even have the whole village. I mean, almost the whole village came. And at that time, the food at the wedding was uh, stuffed cabbage and um, placenta. You were served uh, two or three uh, cabbage rolls and one of those elephant ears. And to take home was a, a small braided piece of bread, like a round piece yeah. of bread. Yeah. And that's what you give as a gift, go away. And to the gifts that you get, we got about one or two dollars from every person. agreed with Anna. She and her husband, Savo, were ready to start a family, and in 1978, at the age of 20, she had her first child, Vesna. And though she had more material comforts than ever before, the Communist Party still loomed over every aspect of life. Her husband's family, once wealthy, had been stripped of their land, though they were still rich compared to Anna's. Savo wanted to be a policeman all his life. But because his parents were deported, his father was in jail. When he went to apply for the police school, they told him, what's born of a cat will always eat mice. So that means your father was a bourgeois and against communism. That means you are against communism. That means you cannot serve the communist party. So that means you cannot be a policeman. We had really like big dreams that we are going to save money and buy a car. Then we are going to go and get an apartment and live in the city and take vacations to the Black Sea or up in the mountains. We have beautiful mountains. And uh, starting in the 80s, 1980, 1982, when the girls were little, it started to get harder. Uh, the food got rationed. You know, you could get only one kilo of uh, sugar a week, uh, one liter of oil. And then we bought the car in 1981. And when we got the car, they started rationing the gasoline. So you could get only 40 liters per month. And then you couldn't drive every weekend. The cars that had odd numbers will drive on odd weekends. Saturday and Sunday, cars with even numbers will drive on even weekends. So we moved in the village, and we started working on the house and started building our finances so we can travel, go to the Black Sea on vacations and all that. And uh, one day he says, you know, I 
think we should think about leaving the country. Oh, I couldn't even breathe. I'm like, no, we can't. And he's of Serbian descent. His village is uh, about 20 kilometers from the border. So because he was a Serb descent and we were closer to the border in Yugoslavia at that time, we, were, uh, we had the right to get a passport. So you can go and come. You could go once a month. You could cross the border, do whatever, come back. You could bring in a bag bread and cookies and little things. And we went to Yugoslavia. I went to Yugoslavia. I thought I went to heaven because food, meat, oil, anything you wanted, the stores were always full. He said, it has to be better than in Romania. And says, how about if we defect to Serbia and from there to Germany? During the 1980s, Romania's leader, Nicolae Ceausescu, imposed austerity measures on the population, trying to pay off foreign debt. Censorship and surveillance by secret police increased, and discontent grew. It was a, a strict rules. You had to work. If you didn't work, well, let me tell you, they found work for you. They picked you up and took you and gave you work and put you on a farm or when we built the, um, the canal that uh, connects Danube with the Black Sea. If you had any anti-communist views, you ended up uh, working at the canal. Many people died there, and many people were prisoners of uh, the communists, prosecuted by the communists and taken there, and many families never found their loved ones, never knew. Then people started crossing the border illegally, like defecting, and if you were caught, you were taken there or shot. At that time, we were also listening to what we call Free Europe and also Free America, a radio station from Germany. And he always said, it has to be better than here. Let's go. So in 1982, when I was pregnant, he said, and let's go to Serbia and from there, and then we'll bring Vesna later. And I didn't. So somehow somebody heard us talk and told the police, and the police came the next day and took our passports. So we lost our Yugoslavia passport, our chance to go, even to go buy stuff in Yugoslavia. Somebody says, if you want to not get in trouble, don't ever talk about leaving, about doing anything, so you have to be very careful. So we didn't talk anymore. We talked only at night, and I will cry. And I told him, I said, we have a car, and we have... He had a motorcycle. So we we shouldn't do things like this. We should just be happy. We have food. We have everything. We have jobs. He's like, no, there is more. And the girls are growing, and I don't want to go to the school in the little village and not be able to do whatever they want. So we talked and I cried and I pleaded, let's just stay. And he's like, it cannot be worse than here. We, we have to try. We have to go. Anna had her second daughter, Yasmina, in 1982, even as things went downhill in Romania. 
Two years after Yasmina was born, the family returned to their town after taking a vacation to the Black Sea. It seemed like a normal day, the kind when you bid goodbye to your spouse on their way out the door, waving goodbye without really thinking about it. We went to work in the morning, and he says, I'm leaving early today because I want to go to the city to buy something. And I'm going to meet blah, 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 somebody. And I said, okay, well, I'll see you tonight. I may not be home tonight, but I'll see you tomorrow at work. Perfect. So at 5 o'clock, I get on the bus and I go home and I get almost the last in the bus and I go towards the back of the bus. And I see everybody talking and looking in the back of the bus at me. So I look to make sure that I don't have anything on my face and on my clothes and I think I'm okay. I don't see anything wrong. Then that evening, I see the policeman coming down the road and he doesn't come to our house, stops at the neighbor house. So I run in the attic to listen. All of a sudden, boom, 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 at the gate. I get down from the attic, I go to the gate, where is Sava? All of a sudden, from the cornfield, I see somebody running, is the wife of Gino. I go in the house, she's like, turn the radio loud. Gino and Sava and the other guy crossed the border. We didn't know anything about him for six months. Police took Anna to the station for questioning. She insisted that her husband had never talked about crossing the border, but now if she heard from him, she was required to report it to the police. Half a year went by without hearing from him. Finally, one day, Anna got a message to come to the post office and receive a call. It was Sava. He had just enough time to tell her that he was alive before the line was cut out. Soon after, Anna received a postcard from him. Police confiscated it almost immediately, but not before she had seen the postmark. Frankfurt. Her husband was safe with friends and seeking asylum in Germany, and his family's anti-communist status in Romania helped with his claim. Despite being offered the chance to stay in Germany, Salva declined and applied for asylum in the United States. In December of 1984, he arrived in the uh, United States in Chicago. And he had a few hundred uh, dollars when he came. So he found a Serbian guy that had a machine shop. So he worked for him for $4.13. He applied for us for uh, a reunification of a family. So he applied for visa and he received it in 1986. But while he was working to get the visa, I was going in Romania to the American embassy, to Romanian export counselor to export what, I don't know, but that's where I had to go. Every time I will go, they will say, no, no, you can't. You have to tell him to come back. Let's talk about this. No, go back. Today is full. We have no 
time allotted to you. You have to call and schedule a time. So I'll call to schedule. Nobody will answer. And because we had no phone, I always had to go to the post office to make a phone call or go uh, and it's uh, 60 kilometers to Timisoara. Walk five kilometers, get on a train, go to Timisoara. Eventually, uh, he got uh, our visa for us, sent it to Bucharest, and I got an interview. So I had to take the kids and go to Bucharest. And when they gave me the passport, because the kids were minors, they put it on my passport as minors. They took my birth certificate, the girl's birth certificate, my marriage certificate, and they gave me a passport. Anna was 28 when she arrived in Chicago with her daughters. Sava had been living in a basement, and rent took up half of their monthly income. After she arrived, Anna started to learn English and study for a nursing assistant license. When I was going to school to get my RN degree, I was working as a nursing assistant from 11 to 7. I'll come home in the morning, take the girls to school. He will be home. My husband will be home with the kids uh, at night, and uh, I'll get them to school. I'll cook. And then I went, I continued to clean houses, and I went to school from 5 to 10. And my husband will work from like 6 to 9 or something in the evening. I slept uh, at the stoplight on my lunch break. And sometimes on Saturday and Sunday if I had time because I also did uh, catering for parties and I helped uh, serve at parties for the ladies that was cleaning houses. I learned quite quickly that you have to buy... Uh, turkey legs, turkey wings, uh, ground meat, milk. I made cereal at home, hard dough, and you grated, and there was the cereal that we ate. When the girls will say, well, my friends have this food and this cereal, uh, my husband would always say, I tasted that at my friend's house, and it was not good. I didn't like it. What mom makes is much better. And they knew you know, no reason to call. So sometimes we will splurge and buy a box of uh, cornflakes because that was the cheapest. It was 69 cents. And I made homemade bread. We never bought bread. So we bought the strict necessities and I cooked at home. We saved from what I uh, earned as a uh, nursing assistant and whatever he earned from the two jobs that he kept. We saved enough money to uh, put a down payment. A series of odd jobs and housing problems forced the family to move several times, including a period when they lived out of their car. Eventually, in 2002, they ended up in Portland, Oregon. Anna continued to work as a nurse, even as her daughters graduated college and her husband retired. I think a very positive person. My husband was always worried about money. What are we going to do if one loses our one job? Mm-hmm. And I was not. I'm like, I will find work. I can work. And I wanted to tell the girls that they can do anything they want. I said, if I became a nurse, you can become anything you want. And they got their degree. 
I never dreamt to to get where we are today. I think everything he talked to me about when he wanted to leave, he said, I think we can take a vacation, do this, do that. Like a little skeptical, but now we, we can do it. And we did it, so I'm very excited. I think we, we lived the American dream. We got a home, we got uh, cars, we got to see the girls grow up and get everything they wanted, college, beautiful home, beautiful husband, kids, because our goal was for them to have a good life and not go through the hardship that we went through. What the heck happened? Many Roads to Here is a production of The Immigrant Story, a nonprofit based in Portland, Oregon. This episode was written by me, Caitlin Dwyer, and Monica Salazar. Our audio editing was done by Rick March. Original music was provided by Harmonia. The original interview was conducted in the spring of 2019 by Caitlin Malik. Our executive producer is the motivating Sankar Raman. For more stories, please visit theimmigrantstory.org.